Namo tasa bhagavato arhanto samasambodasa. Namo tasa bhagavato arhanto samasambodasa. Namo tasa bhagavato arhanto samasambodasa. I got a note. Can everyone hear me okay? Okay. So I got a note before um, this last sitting. I won't mention a name. But it says, I'm having a difficult retreat. I start to settle in and then lose the connection. My mind is still pretty active. I'm feeling frustrated and angry and disappointed. Do you have any suggestions on how to get more present? This talk is dedicated to you and to everyone else here. I really mean it. There's been a lot of um, coming up in our question and answers from last night and in our in group individuals, groups and individual interviews of some themes of being hard and critical of ourselves and having a lot of doubt. And so I thought tonight that I would uh, spend some time with this. But first... As we've been sitting here these past few days, it gets at times very mysterious. Who really are we? So this is from Rod McClaver. It says, why do we exist? <clears throat> Fifty trillion cells make up the human body, and each of those cells in turn consists of atoms, countless millions or billions of them, depending on the function of the specific cell. In the atoms, they consist mostly of empty space, protons and neutrons surrounded by electrons. Empty space, just as the universe is mostly empty space. The human body, this entity of mostly empty space, is space held together, space unified, even if only for a little while, by a life force. Life force needs a purpose. Without purpose, there's no reason for the unity. Without a purpose, life deteriorates, tends to dissolve back into randomness. Without a purpose, a life is less than the sum of its parts. These atoms existed before the human body, and will be here after the life is gone. But in the meantime, in this short interval, the atoms are held together by this indescribable and unknowable force, the empty space. Sometimes in the retreat, we really begin to ponder the mystery. I know my friend Mary Grace has been very much into astronomy, and of course with all of these photographs at the Hubble and other telescopes are able to bring back to us and we see the vastness of this galaxy, this universe. The question of who am I grows. Tara Brock, she writes that the same 
universal forces of attraction that gathers atoms into molecules and holds solar systems spinning in galaxies, also joins the sperm with eggs and brings people together in communities. But who are we? We've been sitting and we've been observing, experiencing just how judgmental and critical we can be of ourselves. Bhante Gunaratana, who wrote a very wonderful book called Mindfulness in Plain English, I always like to recommend it. But he says, somewhere in this process of meditation, you will come face to face with the sudden realization that you are completely crazy. And that your mind is a shrieking madhouse on wheels, barreling down the hill, utterly out of control and hopeless. Sound familiar, anyone? Yeah. He goes on to say, no problem. You're not any crazier than you were yesterday. Perhaps it's always been this way, but we just haven't noticed But as time goes on and we begin sitting with ourselves, we can even get into paranoia. Philip Lepati writes of this, that we who are your closest friends feel the time has come to tell you that every Thursday we've been meeting as a group to devise ways to keep you in perpetual uncertainty, frustration, discontent, and torture by neither, neither loving you as much as you want or cutting you adrift. Your analyst is in on it, plus your boyfriend and your ex-husband. And we've pledged to disappoint you as long as you need us. And in announcing our association, we realize we've placed in your hands a possible antidote against this uncertainty, indeed against ourselves. But since our Thursday nights have brought us to a community of a purpose rare in itself with you as the natural center... We feel hopeful you will continue to make unreasonable demands for affection, if not as a consequence of your disastrous personality, but for the good of the collective. <laughs> we can feel that way sometimes as the paranoia sets in. We laugh because we know those spaces inside us of feeling like we're not seen and we're talked and it hurts, it's painful. Yeah, well, we know that place and... Let this mind run adrift. Ooh, look out. Mindfulness is mind training. Somewhere along the way, it's a very important question for us to ask. How did we end up like this for right now? And of course, this right now is connected with a thread that goes back through time, through our experiences from early childhood. There's times where we have inadvertently or sometimes more explicitly or implicitly lost our sense of wholeness, our sense of, as John Kabat-Zinn and his wife Myla, they write in their book Everyday Blessings that we've lost, the, the children can lose their sovereignty, which is a very interesting word to use. And they talk about that there's three principles in mindful parenting. One is to cultivate Empathy with your child, that's very understandable. And acceptance, yes, that's another one. 
term we can understand, and the other is sovereignty. And so I inquired more, what's this sovereignty? And, and so what they're trying to convey is that at a very early age, like if we'll notice very young children, infants, they are just so full of themselves. They fart, they pee, they laugh, they cry, they want, they don't want. They're just so who they are. And they don't like, oh gosh, did I just mess it up? I wonder if they'll like me or not like me. They don't have any of that. They're just who they are. And the Kabat-Zins call that their sovereign nature. And we get civilized, we get educated, things begin to happen. We begin to lose that sovereign nature. We become wounded. Although actually we call it becoming civilized. Made to conform, to fit in. And of course, you know, when we need to move people around and this and that, I mean, I'm not talking anarchy here, so I understand. And there's a way that happens in our upbringing that we lose at times that sense of our sovereignty our sense of being you know we're not like the baby doesn't look in the mirror and go oh my god look at what I'm seeing yet any one of us look at look in the mirror and so we have that sense at times we've been shamed we've been made to feel small we've been made to feel that we're flawed or inadequate uh, not seen very painful. My wife tells the story. She grew up, she, she had um, a number of older brothers. And she said she was a tomboy. She loved dressing like a boy and just, she was a tomboy. She climbed trees. She was just everything. And she always shares a story about this one day, I think it was her grandmother, her parents, they made her wear a pink dress. It was devastating. We still talk about that. Actually, for a birthday one time, I bought her a cowboy hat. Just to kind of affirm that part of her. That was, like, and she remembers that incident so clearly where she had to, like, like, her way was taken away. The way that she wanted to live. It was smashed. As time goes on, we begin to see through these lenses, our personalities developing. Psychology, we call it our narrative-based self. The self begins to solidify. Talk about that our intentions shape our thoughts and words, and our thoughts and words mold our actions. Our thoughts, words, and actions shape our behaviors, our behaviors sculpt our body expressions. Our bodily expressions fashion our character. Our character hardens into what we look like. Someone once said, you get the face you deserve when you're at 50. But things can change. But it's difficult to make that change because of our perceptions of how we see things. We become very fixed in the ways of our saying, and that's who I am.
this can become a prison for us. Our perceptions can play on us, just as a woman who was at an airport one night. It goes, a woman was waiting at an airport one night with several long hours before her flight, and she hunted for a book in the airport shop, and she bought a bag of cookies and found a place to drop. She was engrossed in her book, but happened to see that the man beside her, as bold as could be, grabbed a cookie or two from the bag between. Which she tried to ignore to avoid, avoid a scene, and she munched cookies and watched the clock as this gutsy cookie thief diminished her stock. She was getting more irritated as the minutes ticked by, thinking if I wasn't so nice, I'd blacken his eye. With each cookie she took, he took one too. And when there was only one left, she wondered what he'd do. With a smile on his face and a nervous laugh, he took the last cookie and broke it in half. And he offered her half as he ate the other. She snatched it from him and thought, Oh, brother, this guy has some nerve and he's also rude and why he didn't even show any gratitude. She had never known when she had been so galled and sighed with relief when her flight was called. She gathered her belongings and headed to the gate, refusing to look back at that thieving ingrate. She boarded the plane and sank in her seat, and then sought her book, which was almost complete, and as she reached in her baggage, she gasped with surprise, for there was her bag of cookies in front of her eyes. <laughs> if mine are here, she moaned with despair, then the others were his, and he tried to share. <laughs> Too late to apologize, she realized with grief that she was the rude one the ingrate, the thief. Our perceptions of things. Our perceptions of things, you know? You've all been sitting here for, what are we on, day four, day five? Day four, you, you're parked, you got your zafus, you got your stuff, you're sitting in your chair, this is how you see the whole hall. If I was really gutsy, I'd ask you all right now to get up and go to another seat. And why don't you do that? Why don't you get up right now and go to another seat? It's kind of shaking it up. <laughs> Just one nearby, so we don't have to take a long time. This is just working on changing the perceptions of things. Because we've been sitting on this cushion and we've been just seeing it in a very specific way. And now, we're seeing it in another way. Now, I could ask you to get up 40 more times. <laughs> and that's still not enough. There's still many more ways of seeing this room and seeing this space. And yet, we get very fixed and stuck in where it is that we're sitting. Which I should maybe move over there, but I won't because I've got all my gear here. And... <laughs> So you'll pardon me. Easy for me to say. So don't worry. Eventually, you will come back to your stuff. <laughs> but this is just to help illustrate. Just even this getting up and seeing from another perspective, it looks different, right? It's different. Different people around you, different place. And the possibilities that we can begin to see differently. And mindfulness is helping us to open up a space to see it 
differently. Margaret Wheatley, she writes an incredibly insightful um, comments here. She says, I know that we notice what we notice because of who we are. We create ourselves by what we choose to notice. And once this work of self-authorship has begun, we inhabit the world we've created. We self-seal. And we don't notice anything except those things that confirm what we already think about who we already are. When we succeed in moving outside of our normal processes of self-reference and can look upon us, upon ourselves with self-awareness, then we have a chance at changing. We can break the seal. We notice something new. Breaking the seal. So this breaking the normal processes of self-reference and can look upon ourselves with self-awareness. As we've been cultivating our awareness, we've begun to experience, this is, a lot has come up here about some of the inner critic, the doubts, we're experiencing because we're being present not distracting ourselves with all the different things that we do, or that we have to do to live, but here in a retreat it's a little different. They even cook for us. We don't even have to wash the dishes hardly. We're just here with ourselves. Now, as I was mentioning last night, yeah, it's very nice and peaceful, but on the inside, it may or may not be. And at times we begin to feel the wounds of our past. I know in talking with a number of you, some of us are feeling very raw, very tender. Some feeling a lot of anger. Some feeling a lot of desire, sleepiness. Perhaps just not feeling anything at all. Of course, there's some that are just really settling in and feeling quiet. And There's a wide spectrum of experience here in the room. But at times we have this idea about meditation and sometimes we feel that we're not quite living or we're not quite made of the right meditative stuff. If only my meditation was different. If only I could experience this or that. So this is dedicated to you, to anyone who feels they're not made of the right meditative stuff. So if you can start the day without caffeine or pep pills, and if you can be cheerful, ignoring aches and pains, if you can resist complaining and boring people with your troubles, if you can eat the same food every day and be grateful for it, if you can understand when loved ones are too busy to give you time, you're made of the right meditative stuff. If you can overlook when people take things out on you through no fault of yours, something goes wrong, if you can take criticism and blame without resentment, if you can face the world without lies and deceit, if you can conquer tension without medical help, you must be made of the right meditative stuff. 
if you can relax without liquor, if you can sleep without the aid of drugs, if you can do all of these things, you are probably the family dog. <laughs> so much for being made of the right meditative stuff. But yet at times, we are punishing ourselves while we're practicing. Yeah? We're punishing, judgmental and critical. These feelings and thoughts have a thread. They are connected, connected to our past. As we sit and become present, the past, the present begins to reveal the thread. The thread begins to reveal the story. The story begins to reveal the feeling. The understanding begins to grow. The understanding begins to potentially set us more free. This is why mindfulness insight practice is so important. We begin to understand what is fueling and driving our anxiety, our worries, our fears. This understanding can begin to set us free rather than operating from our narrative-based selves that we might want to call it, we become more of a mindful-based self, if you will, more living in the immediacy of the present moment and allowing when there's an unpleasant feeling that it's just an unpleasant feeling. This is incredibly noble work that we're doing, this willingness to sit with ourselves Hafiz, he says, not many teachers in this world can give you as much enlightenment in one year as sitting alone for a few days in your closet. That would do. And that means not leaving. You better get a friend to get you a few sandwiches and a chamber pot. No reading, writing. That'd be cheating. Let's aim for the high 360-degree detox. So in some ways, we're, we're sitting in our own closet here. So one aspect of this practice is to become aware of what's present. And the other is to begin to acknowledge what's present. And to work with what is present as practice. No doubt the breath is part of the practice, but it's also all the stuff that's coming up in between the breath from the breath. Payment Children speaks about that, generally speaking, we regard discomfort in any form as bad news. I think that's pretty... Many of us can resonate with that. But she goes on to say, for practitioners or spiritual warriors, people who have a certain hunger to know what's true, feelings like disappointment, embarrassment, irritation, resentment, anger, jealousy, fear, you know, the whole top 40, instead of being bad news are actually very clear moments that are teaching us where it is that we're holding back. They teach us to perk up and lean in when we feel we'd rather collapse and back away. They're like messengers that show us with terrifying clarity exactly where we are stuck. This moment is the perfect teacher and lucky for us, it's with us wherever we are. if we can begin to really work with this part, this concept as part of our practice, that whatever is coming up 
is part of our practice to be embraced, to be acknowledged, to be included, our practice will begin, I believe, to grow. Dana falls in a punchline of a poem. She says, Resist and the tides still sweep you off your feet. Allowing grace will carry you to higher ground. So there's a wisdom tradition of turning in to what's here. Jennifer Wellwood, she writes in Unconditional that willing to experience aloneness, I discover connection everywhere. Turning to face my fear as I meet the warrior who lives within. Opening to my losses, I gain the embrace of the universe. Surrendering into emptiness, I find fullness without end. For each condition that I flee from, it pursues me. While each condition I welcome transforms me. Each condition I flee from pursues me. Each condition I welcome transforms me. It's quite a practice. I remember when I was uh, 16 years old, just learned to drive and riding in the snowy, this was in the winter in the snowy streets of Boston area. And Driving in the snow, very common to get into skids, and my impulse was always to turn away from the skid, and my car kept on skidding out, and I remember telling my dad one day about this, and he said, Bob, if you want to get out of the skid, you've got to turn the wheels in the direction of the skid. And when I heard that, that scared me. That felt counterintuitive. I didn't believe it. I kept on turning away, kept on spinning out. Day came where I skidded out one time and I said, well, I've exhausted my turning away. I know that's not going to help me. What would uh, happen if I just slowly turned into it? And I couldn't believe what happened. My car began to straighten out. I felt like my father, oh, bless my father, planted a very powerful seed in me, turning into my fears, I'll straighten out. Turning into my pain, I'll find my heart. I know it feels very counterintuitive for many of us when we're experiencing the pains as we're sitting in our practice to stay with them, to turn into them. Often the inclination, of course, is to turn away. But we're learning here in mindfulness, just as I've challenged you all, and perhaps you're even a little bit annoyed with me. Why is he making me get up and sit on another seat? And, and, and so I'm sorry if I annoyed you. And th- at the same time, it's, it's opening to that possibility of a perspective that we might be able to see differently. This is really important. At times we need to um, get outside of our own box, Look outside of the boxes, you know, and we can get stuck in seeing things. Just like uh, there's a story about farmers and cows, and you know, in order to keep cows in a pasture, they put up fences. But cows are really strong, and they can easily knock over fences, so they electrify the fences, and then the cows get zapped and they back off. And the farmers observe closely the cows. They get zapped a number of times, and gradually they don't even come near the fence anymore. 
And then the farmers shut off the electricity because, you know, you've got to be economical, you've got to save the power. And the only thing then that is really keeping the cows in the pasture is their own mind. And in some ways, our mind gets in our own pastures, and we see things in very fixed ways. I once read in a World War II history book of a pilot that ran into some problems in World War II from an enemy mission, and machine gunfire put some holes in the hydraulic fluid reservoir of the plane, and that caused um, all the land, the, the fluid came out and couldn't get the landing gear down, and so the pilot was able to get back towards the base and was flying up above the airport and kind of freaking out, how am I going to get the landing gear down, what am I going to do? And he recognized that this state of anxiety was not going to solve the problem and just decided, let me just pause, let me just take a breath. And then an idea arose inside him that hadn't been done before. He knew that there was no hydraulic fluid on the plane, but he asked his soldiers to do this. And what he said was, I want you to plug up the holes from the machine gun, bullet holes, as, as much as you can with tape or put parts of uniform cloth, stuff it up, then on the top hole, I want you all, those a squadron of soldiers, to urinate into the hydraulic fluid reservoir. Now, urine is not the designated fluid. It's hydraulic fluid, but there wasn't any. But believe it or not, they were able to get enough fluid in that hydraulic fluid reservoir to get the landing gear and to get that plane down. And I love that story because it's a story of going outside of the box. And our practice is really, we're working with going outside of the box of our narrative-based ways of seeing things through these very lenses of just seeing things. This is just how it is. And we're shaking that up by becoming more aware rather than the self-reference. We're cultivating our self-awareness. Well, this story gets even more strange is that I told it one night in the Santa Cruz Medical Foundation in a mindfulness-based stress reduction class many, many years ago. And at the end of the class, an older gentleman who was a friend of mine, I knew his daughter quite well, Frank's his name, and he came up to me after class and he's laughing. He goes, Bob, I can't believe you told that story. And I said, yeah, Frank, I read about it in, I mean, I, I heard about it from a friend of mine that read it in a World War II history book. And then I asked Frank, do you know anything about this? And Frank said, do I know anything about this? I was the pilot of that plane. <laughs> now, that's like a, a needle in the cosmic haystack of the universe. How could that be possible? He was in my class. And then he went on to say there was more. That it also, instead of the hydraulic fluid, I mean, the hydraulic fluid also controlled the brakes, and they had no brakes. All they were going to do was get one pedal on the brakes, and then the urine was going to go flying all over the cockpit. And how are we going to stop this plane? And so again, he kind of freaked out, and again, he said he had to calm himself down, and then he had another idea, and when the plane landed, the soldiers opened up all the doors and windows, whatever they could, and they opened up every single parachute they had on the plane, and they got that plane to stop. Whew. The Buddha, many thousands of years ago, when he awakened to the reality that he nor anyone else could not escape from aging, illness, and death, realized that he needed to figure this out. 
As I mentioned the other day, he had what was called in Pali Samwega, this, this understanding of the of, of death and that it could happen at any moment and catapults him into a sense of spiritual urgency to understand this meaning of life. And this journey was a really a total outside-of-the-box experience to try to understand this meaning of life. And it's a beautiful story and I won't go into a lot of its detail, but it said that after six years of very intensive practice, developing concentration practices and also practices of self-mortification that brought him to the edge of almost death, he eventually abandoned all of those practices, took some food to get his strength back, and sat underneath the tree, the Bodhi tree, the tree of awakening, and determined I'm going to stay here and I'm going to try to figure it out on my own. And it said that while he was under the tree, he recalled a memory of when he was a child. And it was one of those very beautiful Northern California days, if you will, when the sun's just right and the wind and so forth. And the farmers were plowing the fields, breaking the soil for the first days of spring to do planting and it was this moment of just ecstasy and wonder and beauty and then within another moment there was this huge pang of sorrow despair of almost he could hear the cries of the worms as the plows were cutting through the earth and just got in touch with that poignancy of of the suffering in the world Thich Nhat Hanh, he sometimes talks about my tears could fill the ocean and my joy could expand the universe. And it's all there. The joys and the sorrows. And it's said that Siddhartha Gautama remembered as a boy when he saw this whole situation of the beauty and the sorrow that he came to his breath and began to breathe in and out and thus began a vigil and a deep awakening that occurred. Even the vigil itself is very powerful because as he was in his vigil, he was being bombarded with by the armies of Mara, who is a manifestation of temptation and greed and aversion and fear. They were all coming at him. Mara was trying to stop the Buddha from awakening. And every time these forces of temptation, lust, greed, fear were being bombarded at him, the Buddha would just, the Siddhartha Gautama would just look at them and say, I see you, Mara. In other words, I see you, greed. No aversion, no denial here. I see lust, I see anger, I see fear. Not push it away, not try to fuel it, but there was the honest acknowledging. This is what was present. I see you, Mara. So maybe we can adopt in our practice when things are coming up, I see you, Mara. Or as a friend of mine says, ah, that too. Ah, that too. It's all here. Siddhartha Gautama experienced an awakening. 
He describes this awakening in a lion's roar where he says, Through many a birth I've wandered in samsara, the world of birth and death, seeking but not finding the builder of the house. Sorrowful it is to be born again and again. O house builder, thou art seen. Thou shalt build no house again. All the rafters are broken, and thy ridge pole is shattered. My mind has attained to the unconditioned. Achieved is the end of suffering, of craving, and ignorance. My mind has attained the unconditioned. Perhaps what he's talking to us about is, is that he broke through the conditioned narrative-based self saw through it. So the Buddha, after his awakening, goes and, you know, considers a while, do I even want to say anything to anyone? And finally he was convinced. And he decided to go and see his five friends that he was practicing with most recently. These were five ascetics that were practicing severe self-mortification and when they heard that uh, Siddhartha left and started eating again, they thought, oh man, he's, he's really gone on the wayside. And so Siddhartha, the Buddha, I should say now at this point, no longer Siddhartha Gautama, began to walk towards the five, and the five saw them, and they said, ah, we're not even going to give them the time of day. But then there was this feeling that just kind of came over them. And without even talking to one another, some started to gather some water and some swept the path, some put out a, like a blanket or something for him to sit on. They, they, something happened. And it was underneath this grove that the Buddha delivered his first talk. And it's called the Dhamma Chakra Pavatana Sutta, the turning of the wheel of the Dharma where he expounds upon the Four Noble Truths that we have discussed a little bit here. So again, I'm bringing all this up for all of us that have been having some challenges and as well as this doubt. This doubt. But there's no doubt we can say about Dukkha. This is the First Noble Truth of the Buddha. The Dukkha is dissatisfactoriness, and I trust that probably everyone here, and if I'm generalizing and someone that hasn't experienced any dukkha, I take it back in this retreat. But, you know, probability factors probably involve in experiencing some type of discomfort, and we would call this dukkha. My teacher, Venerable Tungpulo Seto, he just said it simply, when there's impermanence, there's suffering, because things change. So we may not need to explain a lot about dukkha in the sense of we know what it is, we've been sitting with it. There's dukkha in the body, the physical sensations, and of course we're susceptible to illnesses and aging. There's dukkha in the mind, we're wanting this and wanting that, and old memories, and dukkha. comes from a word, or it's an example of like if there's like a, a wheel, instead of it being fully round, it's a little bit off and it's going the duk, the duk, the duk, dukkha. So the Buddha declared 
in this first noble truth that there is indeed suffering. And for many of us, that's a relief to acknowledge what's here. For years, we talk, say, about acknowledging the white elephant in the room, but maybe I don't want to pick on a poor elephant. I love elephants. But we're naming what's here. I find that to be very relieving. And sometimes Buddhism gets this whole bum rap. Oh, you're just all about suffering. It's all about liberation. The second noble truth, the Buddha expounds upon its cause. And one of the best translations that I have ever read comes from our friend Archan Amaro. And so this is a rendering of his translation of the second noble truth. And he says, this bhikkhus, or monks, is the noble truth of the cause of suffering. So the noble truth, the second noble truth is the cause of suffering. And he says this, the Buddha, that it's craving that is compelling, intoxicating, which causes us to be born into things again and again, ever seeking delight now, here, now, there. It's namely craving for sensual delight, the craving to be something, and the craving to feel nothing. Very powerful translation. The noble truth of the cause of suffering is craving that's compelling, intoxicating, causing us to be born into things again and again, ever seeking delight now here, now there, namely this craving for sensual delight, the craving to be something, the craving to feel nothing. <clears throat> In Kabir, he has a more humorous way of describing this second noble truth. He says, friend, please tell me what I can do about this world that I hold on to and it keeps spinning out. I gave up my sewn clothes and now I wear a robe. But then I noticed one day the cloth was well woven. So I bought some burlap. But I still throw it elegantly over my left shoulder. I pulled back my sexual longings and now I'm angry a lot of the time. I gave up rage and now I notice I'm greedy all day. I've worked hard at dissolving the greed and now I'm kind of proud of myself. <laughs> it goes on. I'll spare you. <clears throat> it goes on. It is like an intoxication. I remember so clearly one day eating this tofu vanilla ice cream some years ago. And I was eating it, and I was just in such a land of satiation. There was no pain. It was a nibbana. But then I noticed there was one or two spoons left, and myself came back, and my dread and my fear, and what am I going to do? Just get another helping. But I knew that wasn't going to be, solve the answer. But there was that sense of, I could just sense that sense of intoxication. It's compelling. And then when it was leaving, what am I going to do? I'm empty again. Perhaps that's part of our addictions. When we look outside of ourselves to be whole and we get these material things, and, but then it ends. We have to find something inside us. So Kabir says, I went searching for the shop where the merchant would say, there's nothing of value here. I found it and I stayed. Yeah. These are poems that arise out of the richness of not wanting. 
beauty sometimes when we feel that sense of the grasping and we stay with the grasping. So I suggest like in the practice, when that's arising, stay with it. Feel what it feels like in the texture of your awareness in your body, thoughts, and emotions when you're in that place of the compelling intoxication. And stay there and hang with it. Notice what does it feel like. And then notice what it feels like when it passes and you can't even believe how you were so compelled to follow through that. We begin to see in our own direct experience some space and freedom that begins to arise. We begin to see the quality of the mind in a state of this grasping versus it falling, letting be. Appreciated Mary Grace's very personal, vulnerable story last night about getting that note. But her mindfulness coming through, like, where is the freedom here? You could see the possibility of the compelling and the perseveration to making it into something. But with entering that cycle of the suffering, where's the freedom here? This is the third noble truth, the cessation, the possibility that we can have cessation of our suffering, or as Sylvia says, at least less of it. Less of it. And I can say that we wouldn't be sitting up here if we haven't, ex- if I haven't experienced this myself, what the heck am I doing up here? You know? My own practice is what informs me. We begin to experience less of it. So this third noble truth is pointing as we learn to lessen. In India, they talk about with how you catch a monkey sometimes is you have a very thin neck of a big vase and you put a banana inside and the monkey sticks its hand in and then it grabs the banana and tries to pull out and it can't get out. But freedom is here. It's right here. It's the letting go of that banana. It's right here. Yet so hard as it is to see at times when we are in that place of our own intoxication of wanting. And, you know, I'm right in there with you, so. The fourth noble truth is the path, is the way to freedom. Trainings and how to live, very practical, but have powerful implications for our well-being. Teachings on how to live, how to train the mind, and with that, wisdom grows. So we're working on feeding ourselves in a particular way, and there's a writing from George Bernard Shaw that says that a Native American elder once described his own inner struggles in this manner. said, inside of me there are two dogs and one of the dogs is mean and evil, and the other is good. And the mean dog fights the good dog all the time. And when asked which dog wins, he reflected for a moment and replied, it depends on which one I feed. Depends on which one I feed. And in the Eightfold Noble Path, we are beginning to feed in such a way that it will help to alleviate our suffering. And we're not asking you to just go ahead and do this, but to try it 
and see for yourself with your own direct experience. The Dharma is filled with this quality of investigation. It's one of the factors of enlightenment. Ehi pasiko in Pali. See for yourself with your own direct experience. And if what you do, if living in such a way that causes least harm brings more happiness into your mind, you know that that's true. It's not just a speculation. And it's, but but you, you, we have to test and measure. I love that question today about the test and measuring. See for ourselves with our own experience. The Eightfold Steps is again divided into these three ways of how to live, how to train the mind, and which supports the wisdom growing. And it can get very specific. Wise speech, wise action, wise livelihood. These are very specific. This is like where the rubber meets the road. We're talking about how we're going to live our life. This is really good stuff. Wise speech. How to live. Wise speech is to not give false speech, not to lie. That breaks trust. There's a reason. We lie, we break trust with one another. We slander, it causes division, it breaks unity. We speak harshly, it's insulting, it takes away one's dignity. We speak with sarcasm, we feel slighted, we feel shamed. Idle chatter, meaningless talk, it's lacking depth in meaning. These qualities of wise speech bring us together, bring unity Bring a sense of connection. So we're cultivating this mindfulness of our speech. Cultivating wise action, not taking life, stealing, causing sexual harm to ourselves or to others. Third way of how to live that the Buddha recommended is wise livelihood. Working in livelihoods that do not promote suffering and harm to others. These trainings support the mind. When we're living virtuously, with integrity, with kindness, our mind is naturally going to be feeling more settled. This is such a foundational support for the training of the mind. As we're not in a place of a lot of remorse or shame because we're living rightly, our minds will tend to settle down. But of course, all of us, as I say, every saint has had a past and we have a future, so no problem. We're coming into the Dharma. We're working on purifying our hearts, and that's why everything is coming up. And we treat whatever's coming up as our practice, to be purified, to open our hearts, to find our hearts. So the mind training involves wise effort to restrain the defilements of greed, hatred, and ignorance and to help abandon them. And we begin to develop wholesome states of mind and try to maintain them. This is wise effort. We're putting our effort to abandon those parts of us that are not for our health and our well-being and trying to cultivate and maintain those parts that do. This is very practical. There's also wise mindfulness, and wise mindfulness really pertains to what we've been doing here in the retreat. We're practicing the four foundations of mindfulness, of the body, of feelings, of mind states, the dharmas. The last training, or part of the training, is, uh, is, is concentration, developing our 
one-pointedness of mind, applying. This is why we're practicing so much, building our concentration, building our mindfulness, working with our effort. And this leads us to the last couple steps of wisdom, this wise understanding. We begin to understand that these Four Noble Truths are not just some theoretical formula, but they have powerful applications in our everyday lives as far as understanding suffering, its causes, and the way to lessening it. We begin to understand that the mind, our mind, is the creator of our own heavens and our own hells through our own very thoughts. This is a very powerful teaching from the Buddha. Mind is the creator of our own heavens and hells through our own very thoughts. We begin to understand that our actions create results. And we begin to live a life of non-harming as much as possible. The last part of wisdom is wise intention. The intention to become more free from the grips of greed, hatred, ignorance. And not that this is morally bad, but it's because it's the root of our own suffering. So we're not trying to give a moral trip here, but see for ourselves when we're consumed with greed, hatred, and ignorance. We're developing the intention of goodwill, of friendliness, loving kindness, of harmlessness, guided by compassion. These are the means that support one another. Each of these aspects of the Eightfold Noble Path, how to live, how to train the mind, to grow wisdom, this is what the Buddha is speaking about as far as lessening our suffering and our pain. So I know that many of us have had some challenges with doubt, and I'd like to just maybe share just a personal story that I had about doubt. And this is the last time that I was, um, when I was a monk, I was know that I was going to be disrobing. And monks are not allowed to talk about what states they've attained in their practice to a layperson. And only on their deathbed can they say something. And, but from one monk to another, they can say something, but they have to be really careful because if they don't say it honestly, they commit what's called the parajika offense, which is one of four major offenses. And if you break that, you are no longer a monk for the rest of your life. This is a very severe consequence. If you say or allude that you're something that you're not, that's one of the parajika offenses. I love how it's so much built on humility. But I was in a crisis as I was getting ready to disrobe, and I asked the settle because I was still a monk. I planned it right. And <clears throat> but my crisis was, was there really nibbana? Is there enlightenment? To me, that was a really big question. Because if, if there's no nibbana, I'm not going to practice. I mean, what, what's going on here? I, I, and and, and I, I wanted to know, was, is it really true? <laughs> Seto, he must think these crazy Americans. But Seto, he looked at me just ever so compassionately and heartfully, and he said, yes, there is Nibbana. And then he went on to say, I am swimming in the sea of the Dharma, and I want you to swim there too. <laughs> 
And um, at that moment, I, I kind of rested for a moment. And of course, that's still kind of metaphors, but uh, there was a sense of something being transmitted at that time where I had that sense there was this place. And it's very difficult to know this place, just like the story of the turtle and the fish, who were absolutely best friends. They saw each other all the time. But every now and again, the turtle go away. And one day when the turtle came back, the fish said, Where you been, turtle? The turtle said, I've been on the land. The fish said, land? The turtle tried to explain what land was. As much as the turtle tried to explain it, fish could not understand. It's only water. And so it's said that those that have tasted that freedom and have conveyed it to us, though it may at times be very difficult for us to understand I'm more like a fish. I don't have the experience of the turtle, but we can hear the sweet words. Mary Grace talked about last night, the, the words of the elders, those that have attained in their words of liberation. With my teacher, Alain Ditsero, who died at the age of 98, six, seven years ago, and I was his uh, student son for 25 years, loved him deeply like a father. And he was one of the most contented human beings that I ever experienced and observed in my life. I lived with him for eight and a half years. I mean, I watched how this guy lived. He had a, an ascetic practice where he would stay in a chair at night and not lie down. One night I had the opportunity to sleep in his room and I was lying down on the floor and different times of the night I would open up my eyes and I'd look, what's Ciro doing? And as I did that, every time I did it, he just looked at me and winked and smiled. <laughs> and then I fell sound asleep and it must have been about four in the morning or whatever and it was really quiet and I, it had been quiet for some time. And I opened up my eyes again, just squinted a little bit so that maybe he wouldn't even see me opening them. And he's just looking at me, smiling. <laughs> Who was that guy? But I can say that lying down by him, sitting by him at night, Seto was a very quiet monk, very ordinary in some ways. In some ways, you might not even notice if he was sitting in a room. He was the opposite of charisma. Some monks, and no doubt and teachers, have a lot of charisma. Seto was the opposite. You didn't notice him. But it was so unnoticeable that all of a sudden, like, who is this guy? <laughs> but I would sit by him, and I would listen to him breathe. That was a lot of my teachings, was just listening to him breathe, and it felt like I was in the forest, in the deep forest with the winds, vast, empty, full, at ease. So there's more, but the time is up. And um, I'm going to read you one thing that um, I just love that 
was given to me when I was in Australia this summer. And it's written by a meditation Dharma teacher in Melbourne, Bob Sharples, who I didn't have the honor to meet. And this came from some book of his. And this, again, is dedicated to all of you that are feeling that, you know, I'm, I may just not doing it right, and it's just so hard. He says, don't meditate to fix yourself and to heal yourself, to improve yourself, to redeem yourself. Rather, do it as an act of love, of deep, warm friendship to yourself. In this way, there's no longer any need for the subtle aggression of self-improvement, for the endless guilt of not doing enough. It offers the possibilities of an end to the ceaseless round of trying so hard that wraps so many people's lives in a knot. Treat meditation as an act of love. Yeah. Can you relate to that? The subtle aggression of self-improvement, the endless guilt of not doing enough, the ceaseless round that trying so hard that wraps so many people's lives in a knot. And I know that for many of us, we've been feeling like we're wrapping our lives in a knot here. If I just did it better, if just this sense, I really want to invite this sense of friendliness, of love, loving. So I'll just end with this by Roger Keyes. This again was given to me in Australia. Hokusi says, look carefully. He says, pay attention and notice. He says, keep looking, stay curious. He says, there's no end to seeing. He says, look forward to getting old. He says, keep changing. You just get more who you really are. He says, get stuck, accept it, repeat yourself as long as it's interesting. He says, keep doing what you love. He says, keep praying. He says, every one of us is a child. Every one of us is ancient. Every one of us has a body. He says, every one of us is frightened. He says, every one of us has to find a way to live with fear. He says everything is alive. Shells, buildings, people, fish, mountains, trees. Wood is alive. Water is alive. Everything has its own life. Everything lives inside us. He says live with the world inside you. He says it doesn't matter if you draw or write books. It doesn't matter if you saw wood or catch fish. It doesn't matter if you sit at home and stare at the ants on your veranda or the shadows of the trees and the grasses in our garden. It matters that you care. It matters that you notice. It matters that life lives through you. Contentment is living, is life living through you. Joy is life living through you. Satisfaction and strength is safe living through you. Is life living through you. Peace is life living through you. He says, don't be afraid. Don't be afraid. Look, feel. Let life take you by the hand. 
let life live through you. May all beings be at peace. By the way, this bowing means that we're honoring the sacred within each of us. Someone had asked me this, what's all this bowing stuff at Spirit Rock? This is a recognition of each other. And when we're bowing to the Buddha, there's five points that are making contact with the floor, the head, the two arms, the two legs. This is called the five-point prostration. And what this means is that we're not paying attention to the statue. We're... We're paying homage, if you will, to the Buddha, the awakened mind, the Dharma, the teaching, the Sangha, the noble community. The fourth is our mother and father because without them we would not be here. They are important. And last is our benefactors, our teachers that have got us on the path. So when we're bowing, we're paying homage to this triple gem, mother, father, and our teacher. Thank you very much, and we'll see you in a little bit.